we need really good sleep knowledge. We need to know what we're talking about. It's an amazing, complex field. It's incredible. And then also, we really need to connect. And I suppose all of you will know how important that is across so many domains. If we stay in our little <laughs> silos of expertise and don't connect, we don't really get anywhere. Welcome to the Centre of Research Excellence and Cerebral Palsy podcast. In this edition, we hear from Juliana Ontolovich, a paediatrician at the Royal Children's Hospital, Sasha Peterson, a clinical nurse consultant at the Royal Children's Hospital and PhD candidate, and Sue McCabe, an occupational therapist and PhD candidate. Juliana introduces our subject matter, sleep. I think Thomas Decker has summed it up beautifully. Sleep is the golden chain that ties health and our bodies together. And I think it's a lovely description of the essentialness of sleep. So is it a problem with children who have physical disability? And I'm being particularly bold and just saying, yes, very common. I think one of the things that I want to highlight in this section is really, um, yes, it might be common, but it depends who asks and how. And I remember very early in my training in this area, I met a young boy called Clark. And I asked his mum, how's sleep? in a very check-out, chick kind of way. And she said, fine. And I left it at that. And I'd like to tell you that I went back to it straight away. I didn't. I went back to it sometime later. And there was something about the way she answered that I thought I'd better ask a little bit more. And what fine was um, looked like this. He's the youngest of three children. The two older boys were already studying and working. His father uh, worked long hours driving. And what was fine for them was that the father slept on the couch, which was the social and study area for the two older siblings, and Clark slept in a bed with his mother. And a good night was her attending to him 11 times a night. So that was fine. But asking about sleep really means probing and working out what fine might really be. Because many families still believe that their child doesn't sleep because they have cerebral palsy and therefore it is not a fixable or an addressable problem. In that early phase, I then started thinking, well, what are the things that I need to think about as a paediatrician who sees children with um, neurodevelopmental problems? What sort of things might interface with sleep problems that I can ask about and understand? And the next few slides will just summarise some of them. It's not a complete list, but it gives you a sense of the, the number of things that we can touch upon and do something about. Understanding the developmental stage of a child is probably quite critical. The number of 15-year-olds who are still put to bed at 7.30 is quite astonishing, but true. Recognising the impact of puberty and emerging sexuality on function and sleep is important. I'm a big believer that mental health is very poorly recognised and managed in children with cerebral palsy and understanding the impact of mood and anxiety is critical. The brain obviously has some sort of role in this, but I'd like to highlight temperature control um, and also the role of epilepsy. The gut affects function in so many ways and impacts on sleep. And the interaction between a chronically hungry person because they're being underfed or a person who has poor appetite because they have chronic pain because they're miserable and feel dreadful, it just shows what a cycle this can create. The respiratory system impacts on sleep and sleep capacity in many ways and often people will have a linear approach and go straight to obstructive sleep apnea but as you would all know there are many ways that um, respiratory function can impact on sleep. 
An area very close to my heart is that of tone and movement disorder. And there is no question that dyskinesia and underlying poorly managed tone impact on the quality of sleep that a child experiences and also impact on neuromuscular complications, which then have a secondary impact on sleep. Many of the drugs that I use might be really helpful for one thing, but might be dreadful for another. Many of the medications that I might use for dyskinesia management have a negative effect on mood, which may then be disruptive to sleep. Sasha Peterson, PhD candidate and clinical nurse consultant, takes up the discussion where Juliana left it, at the connection between sleep and disability. Sleep and physical disability overlap. Where they overlap, there's intrinsic factors, extrinsic factors, behaviour, because behaviour problems are often associated with physical disability, and all of these combine to make a medically vulnerable child, which may result in a parent that's watching their child overnight because they're worried about their safety. So um, I just want to recognise, and this was one of the reasons why I went into my PhDs, that sleep can be a really silent problem. Um, There's often a normalisation of bad sleep in children with physical disability. Sleep conversations are really complex. It can take a really long time to tease out a sleep history and it doesn't fit easily into a clinic where you're talking about epilepsy, respiratory problems, funding letters, um, getting divorced, all that sort of jazz. And... um, Also, there's a distinct lack of um, education in the universities across medical, allied health and nursing courses, which means that even if the parents ask about it, they don't even know how to, don't always know how to answer. As part of her research, Sasha has searched for other literature on sleep and cerebral palsy. I found about 20 papers that quantify um, sleep problems for children with cerebral palsy and their impact. And I just wanted to demonstrate, I did a um, Medline search on Monday just to show that um, if you search cerebral palsy and Um, surgery you might get 1222 papers when you search cerebral palsy and sleep you get 155 and so there's a distinct lack of research in general in CP and when it it comes to analyzing literature uh, 20 papers on one subject is a really low amount of papers to be looking at somewhere between 20 percent and 80 percent 88 percent of children with cerebral palsy have or physical disability have sleep problems In comparison to typically developing children, which is anywhere between about 25 and 30%, it's it's generally overall most papers report that the the rates are higher for children with CP or physical disability. Um, I just pulled out this one um, Malaysian study to highlight. This was a study of fairly large, I think it was about 160 children, and they compared the sleep of children with CP to their typically developing children, and they found that 5% of the typically developing children had sleep problems and 30% of the kids with CP had sleep problems. This is really important because sleep's heavily influenced by culture, socioeconomic factors and parenting. So if you compare um, siblings, you're essentially taking out a lot of those variables, which means that we can assume that CP that's causing the trouble in these kids. So um, there are lots of reasons why kids might be awake at night and I have ignored the respiratory and pure sleep pathology type diagnoses and looked more at the care and comfort type reasons for waking. And the most common reasons for waking at night time are positioning, pain, seizures, incontinence. And so these, and then you can see the list on the side, that's that's all of the possible ones that have been found so far in published research. And in brackets is how many papers support that as a reason. And on this slide, there should be something about the impact of sleep on children with cerebral palsy, but there actually isn't any research on how it impacts on the child directly. And so we know from typically developing children that poor sleep impacts on their cognition, their behaviour, health problems, 
and their um, ability to participate in daily life. So we can assume that for a child with CP, it's probably the same or worse. And if you think about conditions like epilepsy and even toe management, they can worsen when you're fatigued. So potentially sleep is having a great effect on children with CP than, than compared to their typically developing peers. So there are, there's a little research on the impact of um, sleep deprivation or um, poorly sleeping children on their parents. There's been three studies in total that have looked at, at the impact on parents. One study found that 71% of parents of children with physical disability also had a significantly cl clinical sleep problem. Um, one study found that 40% of children with physical disability needed attention overnight and 10% of those needed support five or more times a night, which is pretty significant. And so from these studies and others that I haven't um, put up there, we can conclude that if a child with a physical disability isn't sleeping, their parent isn't sleeping either. Um, so the impact on quality of life and mental health, there's been a correlation between the poor sleep of mothers and higher depression scores, and two studies have linked sleep deprivation with lower quality of life. Um, Co-sleeping is also a significant factor for these families. Parents, somewhere between 10 and 70% of parents sleep with their child with a co-sleep with their child who has a physical disability. And 92% of parents in one study reported that their sleep was worse because they sleep. That they actually had a um, clinical sleep problem on a survey because they slept with their child, when they slept with their child. And so co-sleeping is, there's only been one study that's actually investigated the impact of co-sleeping with these families. One third of those parents said that they co-slept with their child because of an adverse event. They were, they were worried about their child overnight, so fear of a seizure or a breathing problem. Two thirds said it was because their child needed special care overnight. And those parents who did co-sleep with their child reported that um, it had a positive effect on their child's sleep, but it had a negative effect on the parent's sleep, which is pretty significant. And the other aspect that this study looked at was the um, causing of conflict. So 9.4% of parents said that co-sleeping causes conflict between the two parents, and 11% said that co-sleeping causes problems between the child and the parent, which is significant, I think, to demonstrate the impact of um, co-sleeping. And this leads into hypervigilance. So as I've mentioned, parents are awake at night worrying about their children. A report by the Victorian Equal Opportunities Commission in 2012 demonstrated that nighttime vigilance is a risk factor for parents surrendering their children into care. So I think that's a pretty powerful statement about how much impact sleep deprivation and sleep nighttime problems can have on families. And so it looks really vain to put up the two papers of the two speakers today, but we're the only ones who have got papers that quantify sleep problems with CP um, in Australia. I've put this up not to show off, but because it, um, sleep problems are culturally influenced and influenced by um, where you are. And so we need to have local research in order to make interventions that address our population. Sasha's about to refer to a paper. This is a paper from Sue McCabe, who we'll hear from shortly. We've linked to this paper in the show notes. And Sue's paper um, was particularly influential um, in the area as she did a retrospective review of her wonderful sleep service in WA. She found 16 factors of concern that, that impacted on people's sleep. And what she found, um, which was really interesting, was that more, most of the children and young people had multiple factors influencing their sleep and that um, the severity of CP um, impacted on the type of sleep concerns, but it didn't reduce the amount of sleep problems that you had. So I'd assumed before Sue's paper that it was the most severely affected children with cerebral palsy who were sleeping poorly, but actually all of them have sleep problems. It just, it just changed the type of sleep problems that they had. So kids with more severe sleep problems have body positioning, movement and breathing problems, with the kids with the less severe CP have more problems with behaviour, environment and settling routines. 
And that leads me very briefly to my PhD. I'm doing an exploratory study of um, problems of sleep problems for children with um, cerebral palsy and their parents. And I just wanted to finish so that Sue can talk about the really good stuff with a quote from um, a family, with a case from a family. This is a mother that I interviewed. She had a child who was, I think he was three or four. When I spoke to her, she was seven, he was seven or eight, but she was thinking back to when he was three or four. And she said he was awake at night screaming, wailing, stiff, really stiff. She couldn't get him to go to sleep. She didn't understand why he was awake. And most nights she got less than an hour's sleep. And I asked her what happened and if she asked anybody for help. And she said she absolutely did. She asked everybody from the maternal child health nurse through the paediatrician and every single one of them said, he's going to be okay. He'll figure it out. And so I asked her what happened, how did she feel about that when they answered that way? And she said, well, terrible, because I don't think it's normal to sleep that badly. And what if someone less re well-resourced than us had got the same answer? Sue McCabe is an occupational therapist and a PhD candidate. She's passionate about promoting conversations around the issue of sleep and health. If we all know more about sleep, if we can talk more about sleep, it's there. We just need to kind of weave it in more and make things happen. To do that, we need really good sleep knowledge. We need to know what we're talking about. It's an amazing, complex field. It's incredible. And then also, as you'll see as I go along, we really need to connect. And I suppose all of you will know how important that is across so many domains. If we stay in our little <laughs> silos of expertise and don't connect, we don't really get anywhere. And hopefully by the end of my little talk, you'll see that that's why that makes a difference. So, of course, when we think about the International Classification for Function, we can see that at every level, every domain of function, sleep has an impact from the cell level, from the body structure level, through act to activities and participation, how someone's sleeping will impact on that. But equally, we know that sleep is affected by every level, every domain of function. And so it's just, it's just so completely woven through that we should be just thinking about sleep. doesn't matter what field you work in, sleep is just there underpinning everything you do. Many of you might already know about Judith Owen's um, BEARS. That's an acronym that's used across the sleep world, really, the paediatric sleep world. And it's just a way of, of kind of, of having a, a starting point when talking to families about what is the sleep problem, where is it? So bed is, is it, B is for bedtime problems. Is it, is it around getting to bed and settling? E, excessive daytime behaviours. Is it around what's happening when the child's awake? A, awakenings during the night, so is it to do with that kind of thing? R, regularity, duration of sleep, and I've added routines because I think routines is just such a big part. And then S is sleep disorder breathing, and for me, working in the field of cerebral palsy, for people with movement disorders, safety is a massive issue. So that's just, and that's why I've got bears all through my slides, which is just a little distraction. What's behind the bears, though, when we're looking at any, not just people with cerebral palsy, but all conditions, there's so many other things that will impact on how people are sleeping. And I feel like I'm almost stating the obvious, but the trouble with sleep is we've missed the obvious. But culture, season, environment have a huge impact on sleep. The, the family context is massive. The person's age, as Juliana's already talked about, is, is huge. Same story that you've talked about. Families saying, my child's getting up or waking up 3.30 every morning and he's wide awake and I can't get him back to sleep. And we start talking about, oh, what time does he go to sleep? Oh, yeah, half past seven. And you go, well, half past seven to 3.30 in the morning, that's eight hours sleep. How old's your child? 19. 
19-year-olds, eight hours sleep's enough. Don't put your 19-year-old person to bed at 8.30 and, or 7.30 and expect that they're going to sleep past 3.30 in the morning. So a lot of it, a lot of it is around just teasing out, problem-solving, kind of stating the obvious in a not-insulting way. Of course, for people when we're working with conditions like CP, as well as the primary condition, there's lots of comorbid conditions that we need to be aware of. And the other big thing, of course, too, is people's daily occupations, their activities, their habits, their routines. There's so many things that make a difference. So it just it pervades everything. It's affected by everything. We could spend a whole week talking about actually sleep and what we need to know and why it's so incredibly amazing. And, of course, there's no time today, so I won't linger on this other than to say if we are going to help people manage their sleep, we need to know, we need to know why sleep matters so that when we're engaging with families and, they, and then perhaps talking about what's happening with their child, we can say, oh, we can see why sleep is impacting on your child's daytime function, their mood, their behaviour. The fact that they get infections all the time, the fact that they're not particularly well. If a child's sleeping well, their immune system will be better, their ability to manage, respond to surgery and all kinds of challenges will be improved. So talking about how sleep impacts from the single cell level right through to the whole kind of world economy, catastrophic world environment level, sleep is massive. Understanding circadian factors is also really important. And again, it's really amazing and intriguing. If we understand the whole patterns of light and dark, the rhythms of the daily changes in temperature, the rhythms of life and the impact that has on our ability to get to sleep and stay to sleep, it's just incredible. And many of you might know that this year's Nobel Prize winners for science were people who were investigating and reporting on the circadian rhythms, circadian patterns. So it's an, it's an incredible incredible area. Sleep architecture is important to understand. That's the kind of patterns of sleep. We have sleep phases that we go through each night. When we're looking at how people are sleeping, we need to understand those patterns, the difference between what happens during dream sleep, what happens during that deep, slow wave sleep. The fact that, in fact, it's very normal to come up into light sleep several times during the night. So again, people will say, it's something wrong with my child. He wakes up two or three times a night, or he doesn't seem to be having deep sleep. We all we all actually come up into late sleep, uh, light sleep several times a night. What matters is how comfortable we are across all domains so that we can quickly slip back into deeper sleep and, and the whole sleep architecture patterns continue. Um, as Juliana mentioned, we need to look at the fact that sleep changes with age. We need to understand sleep disorders. It's not as I've said before, and I'll say again, kids are kids, people are people. So today we're talking about um, children with conditions like cerebral palsy, but there are sleep conditions out there that are specific to anybody. So the child might also have restless leg syndrome. They might have um, they might have narcolepsy as part of, you know, in comorbid to their condition. There's a whole range of other sleep conditions we need to know about and understand so that we don't miss them. Um, there's a massive range of sleep assessment tools. So when you look into the sleep world and the sleep research world, there's lots of tools that we could be using that would work really well in, in our kind of, in our disability world as well. And there's also masses of resources and interventions. We need to know what can we do, how can we help. And, of course, today is not the time for us to dwell on that, but these are the things that we need to know if we can make a difference. So I'm just going to flick over that slide just to say there's masses of sleep information resources out there. There's journals, range of journals. There's sleep associations. There's incredible sleep conferences. Um, 
some really good books. And I, I have to say, if there was one book that I'd be getting above all is the um, Mindell and Owens Paediatric Sleep, Clinical Guide to Paediatric Sleep. It's, I find it a really, really great book. And in fact, even though it's written around paediatrics, a lot of it is really relevant across in the adult domain as well. It explains all the things about sleep really well. And there's lots and lots of journals that are really relevant or articles that help explain what's happening with, um, with children and sleep. But as, as Sasha mentioned, not enough yet. But there's lots of resources out there to help understand what's going on. Um, so, so what can we do? How can we make a difference? I really like this model. This is developed by um, a paediatrician called Osman Ipsiroglou and he's really keen on the whole idea of listen, observe, explore, describe. So rather when, when a family or a, a person, a patient, presents with a condition, instead of kind of jumping and saying, ah, I know what you've got, you've got anxiety, or like one mum had described to me, she went to her GP because her child wasn't sleeping, she left with antidepressants. That's what the GP prescri prescribed to her. So Osman talks about the fact that we need to not jump to conclusions about, ah, I know what's wrong with you, I know what you've got, but come right back to... How do we explore? How do we listen? How, do, how can families have the tools and the language to describe what's going on so that we can really uncover the, all the aspects of sleep? And this was just a little kind of, um, you know, sequence of, of events that we, that we kind of came up with that could help us look at ways of, of kind of getting that, starting that exploration. So for me, I think it's really important to have to be able to be in, in the home as part of that listen, observe and exploring um, aspect, keeping in mind that we're concerned not just about what's happening at night but 24 out of 24 hours. A lot of what happens during the day impacts on night and vice versa. We've got to look at the whole picture. As Juliana mentioned, we, if, if, people don't, if we don't ask, one, people won't tell us. And number two, again, as you mentioned, we need to ask again and again. And Juliana gave the example, and I can think of many others, exactly the same thing where I've said to families, the referral might have been because the, the therapist is worried about the child's hip pain, for example, and wants me to talk about, look at the position the child's sleeping in in relation to the pain in their hip. And as part of my little list of questions is, what about your child's actual sleep? And the, the mum went in this particular scenario I'm thinking of, she said, it's fine. And I said, oh, that's good. His sleep is fine. And then I did ask, so what time does he go to sleep? And she said, oh, about one. And I was kind of thinking, one, what does she... I said, so do you mean one in the morning? And she went, yeah, one in the morning. And I thought, okay, it's fine, but he doesn't fall asleep to one in the morning. Maybe it's a kind of family culture thing that we all stay up to one in the morning and that works for us. So I said, does that work for you? Oh, no, it's terrible because I've got to get the other kids up by seven for kindy. One o'clock's horrible. So... In, unless you probe and ask and clarify, you're not going to get the picture. You have to ask again and again. Another really kind of scary scenario was when I was seeing a, um, a woman with, with cerebral palsy who had asked for the sleep referral and she was um, initiated the whole thing herself and I went to see her at the place where she was living and one of the questions was, do you get too hot and sweaty during sleep? And she said, no, no, I don't. And she had a, a, a support worker standing with her and I said, sometimes, you know, when you're asleep, you don't see what's happening, but other people do. To the support worker, have you noticed that this person gets hot and sweaty during sleep? And she said, no, 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 she doesn't. That's great. And then we started to look at this person in bed and their position and their comfort. And my colleague, the physio I was working with, picked up this person's pillow 
and it was really, really wet. And so we said, oh, have you already been out of bed, had a shower before we arrived? And she said, no, 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 I've been in bed all night long. This is me lying in bed waiting for you to get here at 8 o'clock in the morning. This woman's pillow was drenched. It was sodden with, with sweat. And yet she had said she doesn't get hot and sweaty during sleep. Her support worker had said she doesn't get hot and sweaty during sleep. If we hadn't been there picking up this drenched pillow, we would have missed it. And being hot and sweaty during sleep has massive impact, not just on the quality of sleep, but also this person's um, general health and well-being. She was incredibly vulnerable to chest infections. And I just think lying on a hot, sweaty pillow all night long is not going to help the situation. So we really need to ask, we need to explore, we need to dig and probe. And I've got a picture here of just a, a home design. That's another area, you know, sometimes we go to people's houses and we're talking about how how the child's sleeping. One family, their little six-year-old daughter with hemiplegia, kept getting up all night long and coming into the parents' bedroom. It was a real problem. When I went to the house, the child lives, sleeps in the little bedroom right up in that back corner at the end of the house and mum and dad sleep in the master bedroom at the front of the house. Now, if you've got one little six-year-old and you think that they're going to happily sleep on their own in the far corner of the house, do you think? No. So it's, a, it's not just about cerebral palsy it's not just about the physical it's about the whole the context of everything and we do need to explore um <clears throat> so home visits are really important we need to we can observe the child the child and their family you know are there lots of other siblings running around um the household the bedroom the bed the mattress the bedding we need to allow time sasha's already alluded to that you can't do this quickly i find that every time i make an appointment it's a minimum of 90 minutes to to kind of to cover everything and that's that's kind of on a good run sometimes families need have got more to talk about and 90 minutes isn't enough and we need to feel we need to get our hands on the child of course and you'd all know that already that sometimes you need to feel what's happening with the child's tone their range of movement their uncontrolled movements and you actually need to go in and feel the bed and the bedding and get your hands on the bed and feel you can feel those lumpy springs you know my child's waking 10 times a night and guess what it's not their cp that's waking them it's the fact that they've got a lumpy bumpy bed but no one's kind of really felt for it and we have all those things happening there's lots and lots of tools that we can use to to explore even more and I've, of course today is not the time to dwell on those sue's about to name a few tools we'll link to her slide in the show notes so you can remember them all things like actigraphy that we can use in the home pulse oximetry is really really important i don't know oh that's just the design there light meters to, to measure how light and dark the person's setting is pressure mapping if someone's getting pressure injuries because they're lying in one position all night long or maybe they've got shearing forces and moving into um, painful or pressure damaging positions those that'll grow um, light uh, temperatures that can put in the child's bedroom so parents can see how hot does their bedroom really get again another story where one family talked about yeah, no, my child's bedroom is good. We've got a fan, we've got an air conditioning, it's not a problem. I lent them one of those growth thermometers and at night time their bedroom was 30 degrees each night. Their bedroom happened to be on the western side of the house. It got the afternoon sun, there was no shade. So there's all that kind of structural stuff that makes a difference as well. And then in the bottom corner are my little eye buttons that I use to measure skin temperature and that's where my area of research is happening is looking at the patterns of skin temperature change in children and the impact that has on their sleep. So there's lots of tools that we can use to explore. Video somnography is a really important one. It, makes a, it's, it tells us things that, know, but that we can't find out any other way and that often parents don't know as well. 
Um, it's a really useful tool, but it can be very intrusive. So, of course, we need to think about the whole side of that. So we've got all this information. We've got such a huge kind of area to think about. How do we, how do we start? And I've found that over time, it's, I've just kind of come back to these little domains of kind of mapping, and I call it comfort because when I think about it, for every, it can't be prescriptive. So for me, comfort means getting it just right for for me, like for you, here and now, what's working for you across all these domains. And so this is the little map that I've kind of come up with that seems to find help me guide the exploration that I'm doing with families. Once again, Sue's slides are linked in the show notes so you can follow this discussion more easily. So health and medical, of course, is massive. And of course, I feel like we need to start with that. Not that it's the most important, but if, if we don't address some of those really important health and medical issues, we're kind of going to be pushing uphill completely. Now, again, this is my line where I'm saying kids are kids. So it's not necessarily about the person's cerebral palsy diagnosis or their comorbid conditions. It could be that that 14-year-old boy has got sebaceous acne with giant boils on his back and he's lying all night long in agony because of his acne. Equally, at the other end of that, how many, how many parents have ever parented a child with worms and how many times you've had to get up to them during the night? And how itchy and scratchy, literally and also kind of mood-wise, children are when they've got worms. Um, so it sounds really trite, but it's incredibly true. In between, there's so many, I, I haven't even listed them all, but when ch children get colds, children have growing pains, children have gum disease, they have hay fever, they have joint pain, they have nightmares, there's so many conditions that are going to impact on the child's sleep and we need to know to to ask about and look and think about the whole body and remember that children are children and just and look into that sensory comfort um in my background as an ot that was an area that i was particularly interested in in years gone by and i still am and there's more and more work emerging about the whole impact of how we regulate respond to the sensations coming from our environment to our bodies, what we do to help regulate our sensory responses, how sensory information can either be arousing or calming. And so it's a really important area for us to, to explore when we're looking at how people sleep. Again, it's really obvious. You know, when you think about if you have a baby and you want to settle your baby, you think about what noises are on in the background. You you might, a dead silent house is usually not going to work because they'll wake to that dog barking five streets away, but equally a house where the TV's on really loud with blaring kind of commercials blaring out also won't work. And we know there's evidence that, for example, certain kinds of music, that a certain kind of rhythms and rates do have a calming effect on, on people, which helps them be ready for sleep and for settling. We know that moving has an impact on people's level of arousal and alertness. You know, put a, we've all had to kind of rock our children across... Um, you know, across a, a bump in the floor to get them to sleep. We know that rhythmic movement can be calming and help settle people down. Deep pressure can make a huge difference to people when they're hyper-aroused and we want to bring that pressure down. Touch, just, you know, tickling. So um, one of the classic things we find is, and again, it's sounding very gender kind of stereotypical, dad comes home from work at 7 o'clock and it's time for a bit of rough and tumble play. But that's just going to arouse the child, bring them up to a higher level of arousal, not be ready for sleep. So it's not just about what you do, but it's when you do it. Even smells can have an alerting or a calming effect. And visual input, what's happening in the room, what's, what's there, and particularly light and dark is huge. 
activities and routines, massive. There's so much we could spend a week just talking about that. And again, kids are kids, families are families. We've all got things that we need to do. We've got times when we like to do them. So we need to explore that with families. We know that having a rhythm to your day has a massive impact on how well you fall asleep. So the timing and the type of meals, timing of having a bath or shower can make a huge impact on getting to sleep and staying asleep. When do you have high action play? When do you have quiet play? Do you have enough high action play during the day? Is the child out there getting that action and the movement they need? Screen time, of course, we already know is massive for everybody. We know about the impact of screen time, of the blue light that's emitted from screens and how it affects our melatonin what's happening there, what's happening with the child's exercise during the day, their therapy sessions, the timing of the therapy sessions. If they're having lots of stretches at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and they've got some residual pain, is it making it hard for them to get to sleep after that? Um, Masses of appointments. And what impact does that have on families' rhythms and routines in everyday life when they've been at hospital and they've got to come home in peak hour traffic and then they get home, they've got to get dinner and suddenly it's half past nine and the rhythm's all gone and there's no time for a bath before bed? Um, Even things like swimming, you know, I've often found that when kids have hydrotherapy, they sleep really well at night. Similarly, things like riding and stuff. So it's really exploring what's happening during the day, the timing, the type, the rhythms, big impact on sleep. I could go on forever about thermal comfort and, and temperature regulation, and I won't, except to say that more and more information is emerging about the impact of body temperature regulation on all of our sleep, um, the the timing and patterns of core body t- temperature change, but also our skin temperature change, affects how we fall, well we fall asleep and how well we stay asleep. And of course, you can imagine that when someone has a condition, a neurological condition like cerebral palsy, there's lots of reasons why their temperature regulation will be impaired. There's the neurological kind of autonomic nervous system. Um, effects. So it's almost like the thermostat is going to be actually affected. But also there's the behavioural um, and movement impairment effects as well. So during the night, someone who doesn't have a movement impairment, if they're too hot, they can just change position. Even a, ne- a, a, a newborn baby, if they're too hot, can move from being all curled up to stretching out to cool down. But if someone has a movement impairment, they may not be able to do that. They can't throw their bedding on and off. They can't change, turn the fan up or turn the air conditioner on. So there's functional as well as physiological reasons why um, thermal comfort is going to impact on sleep. And there's lots of things, of course, that we can do to make a difference. Looking at all those things listed on the screen. I'm running out of time, so I haven't got time to linger. Sleep setting comfort is another area that I feel really passionate about actually because there's so many things that we could be doing to help make a difference to people's sleep. The location of the bedroom, is it at the front of the house where there's traffic noise and street lights? Is it the back of the house too far from the parents? How much light is getting in through through the the curtains and the blinds, etc.? What are the ambient sounds? How much clutter is in the bedroom? What impact does that have on the person's ability to get to sleep and stay asleep? Allergens is a big one. We know that There's, you know, dust mites and those kind of things that can have a big impact. The type of bed that families are using. And so, again, sometimes with with younger children, the child might be sleeping in that beautiful racing car bed that the grandparents bought and the family, the whole family is so attached to it. And I can see that, in fact, the child's safety, health, comfort, pain management and the parents' manual handling will be so much better managed if they're in an adjust electrical adjustable bed. Having that kind of conversation about let's move out of the racing car bed into an adjustable bed is a 
a huge conversation for some families, but I've never yet met a family who afterwards haven't said, oh, I wish we did that sooner. The difference it makes is amazing. So type of bed, type of mattress and the bedding materials, all those kind of really practical functional things can make a huge difference. Position and movement comfort, we can go on forever about, I could go on forever about that. I can go on forever about everything. I've got five minutes left. But of course, there's all those things with the position a person lies in has massive impact on pain on their musculoskeletal function or changes has a huge impact on respiration and we all know that even just the difference between lying flat on your back to to lying on your side or to lying with elevation huge difference the gastrointestinal effects of the of lying position is huge Pest, pressure injury shearing when someone slides down the bed what happens um and of course safety is massive and again there's it's Sometimes it's ridiculously scary. You'll do a home visit, you'll see a family and they'll describe the fact that their child slides out and falls into those gaps between the mattress and the wall every night. And you go, oh, okay, now what do I do? I can't, I don't want to walk away and leave this, this, this risk factor. How do we manage that? It's really big. Safety is a big, big issue. And of course, there's that whole social emotional side of things. And again, Juliana talked about that. And we could spend a whole week just talking about that. There's so many, again, kids are kids, families are families, life is life. All these things are even more so though for people with, with physical disabilities and the challenges that are happening for them in everyday life, for them and for their families. So I've just listed a whole range there and, and you can imagine it's huge. And that brings me to, so whose business is it? You know, when, when you talk to a family about where to go, who do you talk to, whose business is it? Again, this is just off the top of my head, but I could tell you a story about every single person in there. I could tell you a story about a family I've worked with where they've, I've said to them, wow, you need to talk to your endocrinologist about this because da 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 da, da. Talk to your teacher about the fact that the child's sleeping every day from 2pm till 3.30 and that's why it's harder for him to get back to sleep in the evening. But actually he also has epilepsy and so he's really sleepy and the teacher doesn't know whether to try and keep him awake or let him sleep. You know, so it's not a matter of talking and challenging but working as a team. Masses, masses, masses. Pharmacists, you know, pharmacists, you can get compounding um, chemists who can make a different kind of melatonin so the family can, the child can manage it. Um, dietitians for helping to manage, you know, hunger and thirst and the timing of food and the type of, of meals. More and more now we're going to be ex having to communicate with planners and funders about what resources are there in terms of um, time and equipment, etc. for for people so we could go on about that forever but basically if you're in this room if you're working with families sleep is your business you need to know about it I suppose that's the bottom line thank you for listening to the Centre of Research Excellence and Cerebral Palsy podcast to find out more about our CRE head to our website at crecp.org.au I hope you sleep well tonight <laughs>